You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm Ruthie Fierberg, and this is Why We Theater. The intersection of theater and social justice, this podcast digs into today's most thought-provoking and urgent onstage works with the artists who made them and real-world experts who advise us on how we can create impactful change in our offstage lives. After all, that is why we theater. Today, we welcome director Lee Silverman and experts Ira Glass and Barbara Brandon Croft to discuss the lifespan of a fact. For those of you who haven't seen the show, a brief primer. The play follows the editorial battle between real-life essayist John DeGatta and his low-level fact-checker Jim Fingal as they go line by line to vet John's interpretive story about a teen who died by suicide in Las Vegas. After leaving the building ledge, did the boy fall for eight seconds or nine seconds? Were the building bricks red or brown? What is true? Are any facts negotiable? If so, which ones? And who decides? Well, Lee, I want to start with you. As the director of this incredible play, which raised so many questions, how did you first come across the story of Jim Fingal and John DeGatta? Did it come to you as a finished script? It did. It so the script was sent to me um, with the idea that there was going to be a Broadway production of of the play, um, Lifespan of a Fact. And it was, um, when I read the play, I was quite intrigued by it, although nervous about the idea of doing a new play straight on Broadway without any, I mean, that's sort of unheard of. And when I read the source material, which is the book written by Jim Fingal and John DeGatta, The Lifespan of a Fact, um, I was so, I, I became really obsessed and fascinated with how this book, which was essentially a theater piece in and of itself, the way that the book is written with the essay in the center and Jim's um, notes along the outside, the conversation that was already happening in the book between Jim, the fact checker, and John, the essayist, um, the figuring out how to then translate that into the theater piece and taking this script and figuring out um, what is how to make something which is exciting, but not necessarily obviously dramatic and not necessarily something obviously entertaining. 
and right. turn it into a theater piece um, was, I was like, well, this seems impossible. Let's do a cold on Broadway. Why not? Um, so, um, you know, it was, it was really that um, kind of um, just sense of, of, um, you know, as, as a theater maker, we're all the time taking from real life and interpreting and um, extrapolating and um, presenting. And, and unless you're really doing documentary theater, you're all the time looking for both inspiration, but also real life stories and narratives to, um, to take from and pull from and, and to present. And I think the idea of, you know, what makes a good story, what makes a good essay, what makes a good theater piece, when you juxtapose that against certainly our um, current administration and the idea of fact and and how do you communicate, in this case, the story of this um, young boy's death most effectively? Is it through beautiful writing or is it through fact? And so that's really the question of the play and, and um, what what drew me to it what's so incredible is how entertaining you were able to make it. And I'm wondering when you read it, what did you believe could be added by doing it on stage that you weren't getting in the book? How could it become compelling drama? Because I don't know, fact checking is not always the most compelling thing to watch happen. Yeah, it seemed impossible. Uh, you know, obviously having the enormous talents of Daniel Radcliffe and Bobby Cannavale and Cherry Jones was, um, very essential to the, to the, um, fabric of the piece. But I, I will also say that while I was reading the book, the, there's a debate going on, a, a rigorous debate about, um, the nature of, of truth and fact and storytelling and, and, and these themes, as we said. And, and I thought if I could, if I could figure out a way to make that, um, live on stage in a way that people were pulled back and forth, then there was the possibility that the engagement that people would feel would be that they too would be pulled back and forth while they were watching the play and that sometimes they would be on Jim's side and sometimes that they would be on John's side and that they would be surprised at their own um, flexibility, let's say, to the different arguments and that they would find themselves thinking about um, a, a, about the topic in, in ways that they hadn't before, not, not necessarily because of the rigor of the, of the intellectual debate, but because of the way that um, the, the emotion of the story and that the idea of um, how fun it would be to sort of, particularly in our current um, times um, and in, in the times of of um, fake news. And certainly um, when we were previewing the show, it was during the Kavanaugh hearings. I mean, there, were, there are all kinds of ways in which against the backdrop of the, the world that we've been living in, um, having someone, um, particularly in this case, the character of Jim, the character of Jim Fingal, um, the fact checker was, was someone that the audience was fully on the side of. And I don't know if we had done the play at a different time in our political history, if that would be the case. I wonder if people would be on the side of the art. And in fact, the way that people got on the side of Jim Fingal and every time he um, nailed um, the character of John Degata for, for an inconsistency, um, the, the way that people responded in the audience was, was thrilling and I think a little surprising and very specific to the point of time that we were in, which is, I think, part of what made doing the show um, exciting. 
Well, I think it's fascinating that you could feel the audience in that way and that you could really feel them siding with one or the other. And as you were talking, I was actually almost thinking of Frost-Nixon. That is this huge debate about, you know, ethics and I mean, that in particular government, but it's an interview. And what you have in this play is you have the balance of three characters. And I'm wondering, what was it important for you to convey with each of the three characters? Did each of them have to have a different ethos to balance the stool in this land of ambiguity? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I will say that I I have felt that the... um that in fact, there was no protagonist of the play, which is a really weird way to talk about a play. But to say that for me, the protagonist was the argument because the argument was the thing that changed and evolved. Everyone else stayed the same. Um, and that there's a way in which it's a, it's a polemic. It's, it's, there are, Frost Nixon is a great example. A play like Art um, is another example of, of plays like this that I think are, particularly most of Lifespan of a Fact takes place in sort of real time over the, there's sort of the front part of the play and then most of it takes place in real time. And really the thing that you're watching is an argument unfold and progress. And it's not a character study. It's, um, it's how do you present, um, how do these people present their cases in a way that feels surprising, theatrical, um, funny, um, and, and certainly I felt like that was my challenge going into it. Um, I also think that because I felt such a responsibility because John Degada and Jim Fingal are real people. And so there was also, I think, the added um, bonus challenge of trying not to make anybody uh, easily dismissible um, and that they wanted to, I mean, not only for the theater of it, it makes better theater, but I think these were, um, these are, are real people. This is a situation that was essentially, um, based on a real situation that happened with Jim and John, although it, it's been, it was much theatricalized. Um, but, but that in itself, it's also another meta level of the play, which is that it's based on a real thing, but it's not really the real thing. Right. Well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> we're going to get into Okay, that. great. I first want to know, like, was it important to you? You're saying it's it's not a character study, and yet each of these three characters is such a fully real person with distinct perspectives. Was it important to you to make it feel like it was balanced? Because sometimes you don't balance. Sometimes you really want people to land on a different side. Yeah, I think it was important in the triangle of these three characters that it feels like you're pulled to different to each of them um, uh, at different times. And, and, and I think part of the fun of the play and the rhythm of the play and part of the comedy of the play is how that starts to move more quickly throughout the course of the play or slow down. Um, and I would say the other piece of it that was important to me was that it didn't feel like we wrapped it up neatly, um, that we were left with um, sort of the intriguing question hanging at the end um, that we didn't know exactly what what happened. 
Yeah. And, and I will say that, you know, my, my mandate is, is to make an entertaining piece of theater um, and uh, hopefully not do um, harm to anyone or the world in the process, and particularly on this kind of show. So I was also trying to, at every point, make it clear that, um, you know, obviously this was a piece of theater. We're not trying to make a, a docu piece of theater. Um, this wasn't um, any sort of... Um, you know, this was an adaptation of a book, which was an adaptation of a thing that happened. And, you know, there's many frames inside of that. Well, I'm wondering, how does the play differ from the book? Are are there moments in your play that are fictionalized, even as we're watching something that we know involves two real people and an article that did get published? There's so much fiction. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> It, well, first of all, the whole Cherry's whole character is is a, a kind of amalgamation of a number of different people. So, just to say, one whole part of the triangle is um, a complete fabrication, and you know she's based on a couple of people editors that that John has dealt with, but she's she's not a real person in any real way. That that wasn't from the editor in chief in particular who worked on the story in the believer that was the real magazine yeah she's more of an a a a combo package of people i think who edited who was the editor for john over the development of that piece that he wrote so aside from her did it i mean is it true that jim fingal flew across across the country to las vegas like were those pieces true well there's a lot of the um, a lot of it is true as based on the book. Um, how much of the book is true, I don't know that I can really speak to, um, which is also part of the puzzle of the whole thing. Um, I will say that um, uh, just as like uh, one, tiny detail uh, to out about the show, which is that I worked on this play uh, in development and, and uh, for, for about a year before we went into production, did the whole production and did not know until the opening night of our show on Broadway when I met John Degada's mother mm. that she was alive. So much of the play is sort of hinges on this um right that story about his mother dying yes about his mother dying and so that is i will say an example of things that um and again i i, I didn't want to know i i i actually take took everything that was in the book because i for me that is what was true and then we adapted it we took different elements and then the writers and i worked together to figure out what made about the best piece of theater and on some level i i feel like i lost along the way um my own sense of actually um what was true because m sort of my North star or my compass was to make a good play. And so, you know, I mm -hmm. think that we also in, in that tried to make it really clear um, that we were not representing, you know, this is what journalism is. This is what, and, you know, because hope, hopefully it's, it, you know, there was nothing about it that was like trying to promote it as, um, 
as um, a real life rip from the headlines, true event kind of a, a play. I mean, I think it was, um, and, and we never, you know, sort of advertised it as such. So I think that that is also part of the responsibility that we tried to take, although it is true that this boy died and we also wanted to take responsibility for that side of it as well. And the fact that people are walking into a theater is a type of, would you say that that's a type of permission that because of where the story is housed, that it comes with different rules? I mean, it's an interesting question. I mean, I I guess I would say for our purposes, if you're going to see a comedy on Broadway, um, you know, are you really um, investigating it for um, it's like most uh, real to life, truth, hard biting facts. I don't think that that's where people go to get that kind of, um, uh, story. Um, (laughs) and I think we were clear about it being sort of based, um, on something and not, um, not, you know, and not being a piece of news. Mm -hmm. Um, and I, I also, you know, want to say that John, Degada, and and I think this is really important. And when you were talking about character, John wrote this book and used himself as a character and foil to tell this story and to explore this question. He did not write that book, um, and uh, you know, to try and represent anything other than a this for him what became this very compelling argument to excavate, and he sort of uses himself as something of a foil for the character of the character of Jim and so that he is almost conducting his own hypothetical in the book right oh that's so interesting because reading the book reviews from that time from the book the lifespan of a fact so many of those critics who are journalists were upset at the portrayal of their profession so learning that this was kind of an experiment in and of itself is fascinating and did meeting Jim and John in the flesh and working with them on this confuse things, help things in the development? <laughs> um, that's a good question. I loved meeting them. Um, you know, I would say this was a very unusual project. Um, if I can just speak to the genesis of it, which was that many, many years before I was brought on, um, a producer named Norman Twain had read the book in 2006, I think, and had optioned it. So it had gone through a big development period. It had two writers and then those writers left the project. A new writer came on, then that writer left. The first two writers came back. So there had been many versions of the play before before it got as far as um, into my hands. Um, I mean, I was also wondering how you end up with three authors on a yes. play, you know, two sides of an argument. Like that's in and of yes. itself. I was three authors. Okay. Three authors um, based on a book written by two. So exactly. it, it was, it, there was already a lot of, um, a lot of people, but when Norman, so Norman unfortunately passed away and, and one of his last wishes was that this play, which he always felt would be an amazing, amazing play, um, was handed to Jeffrey Richards, the Broadway producer who mm-hmm. in turn had sent it, um, to me. And it, it, it again, when I, I, I wasn't sure really when I read the script, I didn't quite understand. I hadn't, I didn't know these three writers. I, I didn't know what it was. And when I read the book, I was hooked. Mm-hmm. I felt that there was real opportunity 
um, to explore this issue in a medium that didn't seem like the most natural fit. And um, I think it was a little kamikaze. I mean, I think about it now a little bit and I'm like, wow, okay, that was really adventurous of us. But um, <laughs> but it did feel like um, that there was a way, um, particularly in that moment, the idea of um, uh, what what is what is the best way to tell a story and um, what is the difference between news and story and what is the difference between um, uh, really trying to reach people, um, you know, through something like an essay versus something like nonfiction and why are those things different? And certainly this, this is a very, as in, in many different kinds of art forms, it takes a kind of extreme case or an outlier kind of case to bring that topic kind of up and to make people really think about it. Yeah. Um, Well, that's really the perfect segue. But right before I enfold our other guests into this conversation, I want to ask you just in general, as a dramatist, we talk about truth in the theater all the time, just this pursuit of the truth. And I'm wondering what is that for you? Whether it's a play about getting to the truth or whether it's a play about climate change, like what, what is the pursuit of truth feel like to you? And how do you know when you've reached it as a dramatist? For me, it's about emotional truth. I mean, I don't think theater's the medium for a kind of act accurate, real life thing. Theater doesn't do that. You know, someone wears a white dress in life. It's a white dress. Someone wears a white dress on stage. It means something. You look at theater. It we're, we're all the time making connections in theater that aren't there in regular life. We're all the time putting meaning and metaphor into the things that we see on the stage. That's what theater does best. It lifts actually out of the realm of, um, I would say, hard fact into a different kind of realm. And so when I look for truth, I look for emotional truth to help connect people, align people, um, wake people up, shake them, stun them, horrify them, whatever the thing is. But you, to me, you get that through an emotional truth, which is in fact the opposite of, um, I think, other kinds of journalism. And I actually don't, as a as a theater maker, I don't pursue truth in the sense of, and I and, and I think we're using a lot of different words that are synonymous but different from truth. But but I I think that it's not what theater does best. You know, a, a play that is about um, climate change that. Um, like a play that I directed last season that included like a visit from, um, from the, you know, which was an adaptation of the Bacchae. And so that play, which had no actual real life uh, comparison, because there was like a giant, you know, um, lesbian orgy in a cul-de-sac in the middle of, you know, the end of the world. But like that, that may not be like a thing that has um, a real life um, accurate thing, but the emotional truth of what people do in an apocalypse and a climate change apocalypse, you know, that, that, that the thing we were after was a kind of um, uh, emotional truth as a response to a moment. And I think as a theater, as, as theater makers, that's what we try and find and hone as opposed to something that feels like we're delivering straight up um, 
news or direct correlations, although there is some theater that does that. Certainly there's quite a bit of documentary theater. Um, that That's just not the kind of theater that I make. As we weigh this idea of emotional truth, factual truth, all these things, I want to fold into the conversation our other two guests. We are lucky enough to have um, Mr. Ira Glass, the executive producer and host of This American Life with us. Welcome, Ira. Thank you for being here. Nice to be here. We have um, Ms. Barbara Brandon-Croft, who is the research director at Parents Magazine. Um, I personally worked with her when I worked at Parents. She is also a very gifted artist herself um, as a cartoonist and the first female African-American cartoonist to be nationally syndicated in the mainstream media. So we've got artists and storytellers all. And what I want to know, I mean, first, let's start with you, Ira, because I feel like you're eager to jump in about this idea of emotional truth versus accuracy, facts versus truth, all these words that we, you know, we even use the word storytelling and journalism interchangeably. How does that all sit with you? I would say I saw a lifespan of a fact, completely enjoyed it, and have no qualms with the idea that Lee and the writers would would uh, change around facts or the fact that the guy's mom is alive and the play very pointedly says that she's dead. I, I kind of feel like that sort of thing happens in the theater. And I feel like as long as it says sort of based on real events or something and doesn't say these are accurate and true events, that that seems like exactly what somebody has to do in adapting uh, true events to a film or to a play. Like that seems utterly normal. Mm-hmm. There have been films that have been made from stories from our show and things get altered around. You just, it, it, they're just different forms. And in order to make something that has that has feeling in the way that a play or a film has to have feeling, like you just have to do that. It's just impossible mm-hmm. to do, I think, or it's very difficult to do any other way, or the facts just have to be very unusually <laughs> dramatically satisfying in a right. way that they rarely seem to be in real life. So, so, so I feel like that kind of project, I don't have a, I don't have a problem with. I mean, I mean, I think when you're in the context that, that I'm in, you know, like I work with journalists and, and, and in our context, like everything we do is true on This American Life. If we're doing a piece of journalism, we don't move around. We, you know, somebody. We don't change the story so somebody meets somebody earlier because it'll make a better story. Or you know, we don't. We don't move around the dates or times, or we don't move around anything. There's a fact checker. There fact. There's a team of fact checkers who fact check right. everything on the show, which basically means re-reporting every single thing. If there's a thing that we can't figure out, is it true or not? It generally it goes. You know, like we don't say it if it's not true, or if we can't mm-hmm. ascertain that it's true. And so and so working as as journalists. Um, I was disturbed watching Lee's show. Watching those two people hash it out, that did not ring true to you as a journalist. I just sat in the theater like like I was entertained. I laughed. I, I wanted, I just wanted to scream so much of the show. And the reason why is because the person, the show is about this guy, Degada. He's just a fringe character. Like, like, I mean, and it's not Lee's job to diagnose, like, the state of journalism or who he is in journalism. He's the ultimate extreme. As the guy who says, I'm not a journalist, I'm an essayist, I'm an author, this is not an article, that he is he is right. the outlier 
in any sort of reality. If he's this he, reality. Like, like to give you a sense of how much of an outlier he is, I have never met anyone. Like I've been in journalism since I was a teenager when I started at NPR in Washington. I've met hundreds of journalists. I've edited hundreds of stories. You know, like I've literally never met a single reporter who says anything like what he says. I've never well, met anybody who says- Because he doesn't say that he he- have you ever met someone who doesn't call themselves a reporter? Uh, well, well, that's the thing. Like, like, right. He says in the play, he's not a reporter. He's like a essayist or something. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think that that's totally fine. I just think that that's not, I, 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 the thing that I worried sitting in the theater is do, wait, do people think that's, this is how it works? That like a reporter comes back, mm-hmm. a magazine writer comes back or like, and says like, well, you know, it just sounds better if we say it happened on this night or if like, mm-hmm. you know, if we say, you know, it has this color, this number goes better with this thing. It just sounds better. Like we, I, just the thought that people, you know, you're packing them in <laughs> like 1500 at a time or whatever it is, would think that like any journalist worked like that. Like, it's just so like, just nobody, there's like that fight that they're having on stage. Like, I get that some version of it did happen in real life, but I've never witnessed that. Like that there's differences when you're talking about even just news and magazines, because when, and when you're talking about personal essays and when you're talking about, iterations of the form, like with memoir versus nonfiction. And so Barbara, I'm actually wondering from you, like, did this story ring true to you? Was it familiar to your reality at all? Absolutely. It was, it was completely familiar. What? (laughs) And I was, you know, like I, you know, I had my husband take me as a musician and I'm sitting there and I was like, I wanted you to know what my life is like. I'm the fact checker. When, when I go to my job, this is what I do. He, he thoroughly enjoyed it. I was so, so pleased. But I'm telling you, I've run into crazy things like this. I mean, I've not, you know, I worked at uh, a lot of different magazines. And um, there was a moment that I was working at um, Rosie, was became Rosie McCall's. McCall's became Rosie. Anyway, we had a story on um, the Timothy McVeigh bombing, the um and it was a, you know, it was heavy. You know, it's like here's the story, but it was to- told in an essay-like style. And um, and I'm talking to the different people that they talk to, and the, what sticks in my mind is somebody. The writer said, you know, I sat there and talked to this woman who experienced this, and she had on this. Um, she said what she had. On, the writer said what the woman was wearing, and I just kind of met, casually mentioned it to the woman, and she's like, I don't own a suit. I was like, what? <laughs> Wait, what? the writer said that she was wearing a suit? Wearing a suit. And the woman was like, I don't even own a suit. And I was like, well, that makes me a little uncomfortable about everything else this writer has given us. But, of course, I mean, that's little. But, it's, I mean, the, the movie kind of, I mean, the movie play um, kind of um, showed a lot of things that I've seen. Um, really? Like, wait, did, 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 did you change that? Did you change it in the... Absolutely. I was like, we can't say this, you know, and, and they changed it. But but also, um, the, I love the fact that you had the editor in there. You know, that kind of made a difference for me, too, because between just, the, you know, like from the book, it's just the writer and the fact checker. But with that that extra added thing, which felt rang so true to me, you know, she's trying to mediate. You know, it's like, hmm, well, can we say it this way if we do this? And I'm, I can get 
easy. You know, it's like, all right, I guess I get what you're saying, but for the record, that's not true. It seems to be implying this, and maybe we shouldn't say it. Um, so I, I, that's what my role has been as a fact. So I want to back up for a second because what you're speaking to is like very similarly mirrored in the play where there seem to be like degrees of egregiousness, right? Like first it's just like the bricks are red or are they brown? And you're like, yeah, I know, I know what they mean because bricks are always kind of reddish brown. But then suddenly you're talking about, you know, this other person who died by suicide that day and he changes it to a hanging when it is, um, you know, that this other woman died also by jumping off of a structure. And right. And I feel like the audience is feeling like, okay, we'll forgive the bricks, but we will not forgive this other thing. Like you can feel that, like Lee was saying, you can feel things in the audience. So, and I find it interesting that you're talking about in this McVeigh story, the woman's suit, like even that to you did not feel okay. So that's almost the equivalent of the bricks. So like, yeah. what is it about those smaller facts that still matter like make yeah. a case for the small fact. When I see a little thing like that, that makes me a little wary. I'm like, okay, you've kind of lost your credibility a little bit. It's sliding, mm -hmm. you know, so I'm starting to wonder. Um, but, you know, you keep going on and you keep checking out the different facts and you keep finding out that this is right, this is right, this is right. Okay, we can go with that. And then I go to the editor and I'm like, um, can we just not, mention the suit can we just not say you know she sat there and they talked you know let's let's eliminate that and and usually that's what they do lee as a director you know how important like costume is to a character that seems to me what the writer of that story was trying to do is establish character and oh, so it suggests that this was a you know a businesswoman you know like it's it, that's what it suggests i mean maybe she was but she was not wearing a suit. Um, and if you wanted to say she was a businesswoman, maybe you should say that because that's what the story is supposed to be. I mean, it's that kind of thing. So it, it is true that I have seen this kind of thing. I've, I've even seen, um, I mean, not straight up, nothing that would hurt anybody, you know, nothing that would, um, you know, um, make a big deal, but uh, something about a number of um, names on the wall or whatever. And, you know, Count those names, like there are a billion names and I'm counting them. And I come up with a number and they're like, oh, we don't like that number. <laughs> I'm like, what? You know, it's it's that kind of silliness that happens to fact checkers. That's why I was, and, but I went on both sides while I was watching the play. I really, I was like, all right, he's getting to be a little too ridiculous. You know, he's, he's going too far. What was too far that Jim Fingal did for you as the fact checker? There were so many things that were so funny, you know, like he's got a story, it's like a, two sheets of paper and he's got a stack of backup. And it's like, that's what we do. We have to go through all this to figure out what this, all of that was hilarious. Ira, was there any, was there ever a moment for you that you thought uh, the fact checker has gone too far? No, in fact, there's a moment, <laughs> no. No, there's never a moment like that. In fact, there's a moment that got a big laugh the night that I saw it, where where uh, I think it's something that Bobby Cannavale, the the writer character, says. Where he's like, "Can you believe this guy?" I said in the I said in the play that it was a full moon. Was it a full moon? Lee? Yeah, there was a, and and he checked that date for the phase yeah. of the moon, 
And then, can you believe it? And the audience laughs. And I was like, yes, of course he checked. That's a checkable fact. Of course, that's his job. Yes, of course. We would never, any journalist would check that. That's totally, the fact that people laughed, I felt like, wait, whose side are you on? You know, and I don't know. That's so funny because that is what you check. You know, like the, the I think the people said it for the um, when he was um, when Timothy McVeigh uh, was um, you know put down. I don't, I don't that's another word I'm looking for. But the families were leaving at a certain time to get to this um, his execution. Know, execution. That's the word I was trying to find. And um, and I looked that up. I was like, they said it was dark. I was like, where they were coming from here? If they were going to here, was it really dark at that? Well, that's the kind of thing you look up. That's the kind of thing you do. And that's yeah. totally normal. That's like the normal, yeah, that's, that's like the garden variety. That's like, that's like actors being off book. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like they got to memorize their lines. We check yeah. every single fact. Every so single fact. That yeah. brings me to wonder, like actors always have to be off book. It's not really, there's no actor's handbook that's written there that says that. That's just common knowledge and we know it. Is there a written code of ethics that we can look to that covers all of this? Like I was, you know, I know that there's obviously ASME, the American Society of Magazine Editors, there's the Society of Professional Journalists, like there are establishments, but like, where do you get your rules? Barbara, let's start with you, where do you get your rules? I mean, I've, I've written my fact-checking one-on-one for people who come to work for me. You know, it's like, okay, these are the things you have to know. These are, these are not reliable sources. These are reliable sources. Sources. I let my editors know um, that the writers have to give backup. You know, you have to know where, I need an original source. I say, you can't give me a new, this is in the New York Times. It's like, yeah, and that's not good enough. You know, it's like, I need the original source or we, I need to be able to find it. So define um, for us an original source for our listeners, because I don't think people understand what that means. Oh, well, um, if somebody says, well, it was written in the New York Times that um, the CDC said blah, blah, you know, whatever it may be, I don't need it from the New York Times. I don't I don't accept it from the New York Times. I go to the CDC mm-hmm. I go and, and contact someone there, go to their website and find out if that's accurate. You mm-hmm. know, that's kind of what you have to do. I don't know. And and you're asking, like, is there a central thing? There's no central, like, set of rules that I've ever heard of. It's more just like every little journalism shop does it their own way in the way that everybody who directs play has the way of, like, getting everybody organized and getting the blocking organized. And, like, all that you know is at the end, the thing has to be factually true. And there's certain things that, that generally are done to do that. And and like Barbara says, yeah, you, you check every source back to the beginning. And can I just um, say, I want to just say, tell you what the lines were that Ira was, um, was quoting, which is that Emily, the um, editor says she is quoting a thing that, um, that is in the essay, which is you could only see 12% of the moon that night. So the moon was not half full. So this is something that Jim has fact checked. And then she (laughs) says, who the hell is going to check a moon chart? And Jim says, I did. I don't have a code book that tells me what matters and what doesn't. And Emily yeah. says, there is no code book. It's called judgment. Yeah. That's- Very on point. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So, well, so I'm wondering even to all three of you, because Lee as a consumer and a creator and, and Barbara and Ira, what would you want in the journalist's code book? Like what rules Barbara, what's in your fact-checking 101? 
<laughs> my fact checking point of one, I have, um, it's, it's really kind of what I have to do is be clear what, what people think might be a good source is not a good source. It's like, okay, you got that from a blog. That's no good. If it's a disease, you can't go to the, the um, support group website. You need to go to the uh, association or, or universities and, you know, you have to go to the real folks, legislation, you go to the government, you know, there are places to go um, for studies. You can, the NIH has a, a, a very large um, a number of studies that you can find there. You can almost find yeah, everything. The real research. The real, yeah, I mean, statistics, you know, we look up trademarks, you know, there's a trademark website that you can check out. And Ira, what would you, what would you put on that list? I mean, I mean, like fact-checking things is very much a moving target and the customs of it are a moving target, partly because we exist now in a, in a political environment and a cultural environment where, where uh, untruths are stated at such speed on live television. And so one of the things that I think is interesting that you've seen grow up over the recent years is that you'll see uh, people like Jake Tapper on CNN or Anderson Cooper um, do real-time fact-checkings at George Stephanopoulos. Uh, of interviews as they're happening. People will say things. I, I've seen George Stephanopoulos on uh, on with White House officials. Um, you know, just basically they'll say something and he'll say, well, that's not true. And he'll say, and, and just go on to the next question. Not give, not even give, I saw him do this with uh, Stephen Miller, the, the president. Right, uh, not give a chance for rebuttal. Well, yeah, just 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 like just point out for, because because there's a thing right now where where untruths are are standing out there unchallenged. It's interesting seeing what happens when the president gives an address uh, or talks about uh, or you know recently it's been talking about coronavirus and you know and, and just stating things that are not true, saying that everyone that there are tests available right now. You know, there are plenty of tests and you can get a test. Anybody wants a test and watching anchors having to jump in on the live feed, you know, just as soon as it's done to say like, well, actually that's not true. The fact checkers, it's a column. <laughs> yeah. 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 You watch it and they have that column though. How many people read that column? Like where you want to be is you want right. to be as close to the, to the untruth with the truth. And so, and so, um, you know, so everything that Barbara's saying has just gotten way more way more intense. Like it's very much like a, a war for factual for factual information and to establish what, what the truth is. In a non-news situation, especially, you know, Barbara, you're editing magazine stories that aren't always, you know, reporting the latest study on raising toddlers. And I certainly you have a lot of editorial control in these narratives and these themes. Like what are you looking for in a story before you decide that it needs vetting? Like before you're, what are you looking for at the substance of something that says this is worth telling if it is true? Well, I mean, there are criteria aren't that different. I mean, for me, like aren't that different than Lee's? Like you want something that will connect to people and be moving. Like for This American Life, like, you know, we're an experiment at doing stories that are factually true, but also have the kind of emotional um, feeling to them that, that a great, drama can have, or at least a drama, I won't even say a great drama, just a drama where people go through story arcs, people go through changes, and we register their feelings along the way. And the events of the plot, you know, it's structured around plot and the events of the plot drive people through different feelings. And you want to chart what their feelings are at each spot in the way that a good dramaturg would. And, uh, and chart where they begin, chart where their feelings end, but every beat of it is true. So for us, you know, what we need is we need, there has to be a plot, the plot has to be surprising. Generally, we needed to drive at some thought about the world that you haven't thought before, which I'm sure is very much part of Lee's job and Barbara's job too. 
I mean, and then, and, you know, and then we go and report it out and, and, you know, if the story turns out to be true, like, you know, we, we verify everything. We do get into like a certain territory, like since we do so many stories that aren't news, but are just personal stories that the only people who can attest to the facts are the people who are interviewing, you know, it's just something that happened in a room with two people 15 years ago. And there, the best you can do is like, talk to everybody around them, talk to the people who were involved. And at some point you just have to decide if, if you trust them, if everything else they say seems to add up. The switched at birth episode of This American Life with those mothers who were really the only people who could talk about why they didn't share the yeah. information new. And they're, I mean, and they're very elderly and those are the only those memories are the only sources. to yes. rely on. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that's a story where where basically uh, one mother knows that the babies were switched to birth. She waits three or four decades to let everybody else know and say like, no, no, that one's my kid. This one's your kid. And then why she did that, you know, and why she didn't tell the truth earlier. Like the only person who can answer that is her. Um, but but that's a story very much structured like a drama the way I think any dramaturg word where basically you hear a bunch of people, you know, shit talker for like 45 minutes before you get to, and you should be like, what's wrong with this lady? And then when she finally explains why, like your heart really goes out to her and, and all your sympathies switch in the way that Lee's saying, like you want people's feelings to switch back and forth and sympathize with one character and another. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I'm wondering too, I'll pose this to the group. Like we've been talking kind of about two types of truth, that there's an emotional truth and there's a factual truth. Are they equivalent? No, <laughs> they're not equivalent. No, of course not. No. Ira, I not. love how, how steadfast you are in this. No, like, no, like things can seem, things can have a lot of feeling, but not be true. Like, like lots of great people are making a good living doing really wonderful work. No, like, like Fleabag isn't factually true, but it's emotionally true, you know? Mm -hmm. I guess, is it, I'm almost thinking just as like human beings though, to me, sometimes emotional truth, like, and I think this is what John DeGott is saying is that emotional truth can feel more important that there is something to be gleaned by, you know, the mother of this boy who, who jumped off a building saying it's my essence. It's the essence of my child. It 100% feels more important. It always does. And I think it always will. Emotional truth is like so much more important to us than, than factual truth, which is why we live in the world we do. You know, like, like people don't vote based on the facts. People vote based on their feelings. Like, like everything we do is based on our feelings. Emotional truth runs the world. It's the most important thing. 
we were talking about, you know, since the beginning, you were very clear that like, this is a drama, this is a piece of theater. And um, I often wonder, like, why didn't John Degata just call his, like, why didn't they just label it fiction in the magazine? And that we have such a desire as people, or that we have this belief that things are more powerful if they are true. And I'm wondering just what your general thought is on that. Like, why do you think, why do we need things to be true? If I can ask you to philosophize. <laughs> oh God. Um, you know, I don't, I, I can't um, speak for John. You know, I think he had an intention with writing this book um, that was understood by some and misunderstood by many. And I think he felt, um, you know, the reaction that he got um, from from many journalists was, you know, um, qu quite angry. And I think people felt like he had um, sort of abused the form. It's my job to provide people, whether it's funny or not, or a drama or not, or a thriller, to give people something to think about that they haven't thought about in this way. And um, I feel like what this topic has and what the play ho hopefully did for audiences was really question in a deep way, what is the slippery slope around fact? Mm -hmm. And that for me is, is, um, is, the, is the fundamental question. And yet, I, like, we are obsessed with this idea of the truth, like, that we want things to be true, not just that we want it to feel true, but that we want it to actually be true. Yeah, but you're also talking about something that is, um, I mean, it's really d different people feel truth in a different way, you know, so it's not like that. And so I think it's that's one of the contributing factors to the chaos right now is um, there's the truth people, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, um, it, it's not, it's not like, oh, and this is the truth and everyone agrees on it. Everyone feels differently about what the truth is. It's not one thing that it's ever changing depending on who's looking at it or describing it. And I mean, I think that for me, one of the things that's so amazing about what Ira's done with This America, This American Life, which is like a show that I feel like, um, you know, I, the people on This American Life are, are feel like my friends because I have listened to every um, episode sort of fanatically. And I think the way that Ira tells stories is so incredible because actually he is aligning um the the stars in a way of a, a real a, a true situation an autobiographical situation um, and and being able to um, connect it to um, an emotional truth and to still have elements of surprise and theater and I mean I, I often feel and and I know many of the this American life stories have translated into other mediums because of this, because they feel like the farewell. It, you know, that is a perfect example of a piece that was, um, you know, one, it was, it was a documentary radio piece that turned into um, a, a whole other form. And I think that so much of the work on This American Life does that. And, and it's really a question of credibility in a certain way. So what's, what makes a show like This American Life credible is because it, it is based foundationally in the ethics that I feel like Ira was just talking about. But what makes art credible 
are they're different foundational beliefs. Can I just say like that was really nice to hear you say, Lee. But but also like I feel like th- what this American life is, it's like journalism done by somebody who basically basically grew up watching Fiddler on the Roof. You know, like like I feel like the aesthetics of the show are so are so defined by 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 the plays I saw as a kid. Well, your show's structure as prologue, act one, act two, act three. Yeah, that's true. Like, like it really, like, it, like it was the plays that I saw. I feel like, like I, when I started doing reporting, like at some point I was just like, I want the journalism to have the feeling I would get from those th- experiences I've had, like watching musicals actually when I was a kid. I'm wondering where is, in your opinion, the place for perspective in journalism? What What do you mean by perspective? Like, I think that, um, like, style and the writer's point of view. Like, when I write a profile, someone is going to read that and then see my subject through my eyes. And I take that as a given of my type of journalism. But is it a given of a type of journalism? Is a... Is I, see I think what you're you saying. have a perspective as an editor in chief of the kinds of stories you like. Like, where is the place for perspective and personal point of view? Much like what you're describing it in writing a feature story, like the way you write. That is, we assume that like there's there's something out there we want to document, and we assume that the writer is an interesting enough enough person that that when they have a perspective, when they have thoughts and feelings about the thing that they're documenting, like we want them to put that into the story. It just makes it a better story if the person documenting it is a human being and not just like some newsy robot. And so and so very much we exist in the magazine. It, like it's a long tradition in journalism, like in magazines and elsewhere, that the writer can have a voice and have a personality. And, and, and uh, but within that, like, you know, we want everything they say, everything they say has to be true, you know, uh, it, like, and stand up to, to proper fact check. Well, to me, one of the questions that was being raised is like, whose truth are we in pursuit of? And I also wonder in terms of like making a judgment call, Barbara, on your end, because like, there are so many things ringing in my head as I think about this, whether it's like that line in Wicked that goes, it's all in which label is able to persist is what makes history. Like that there are synony- there are synonymous words, um, but it's based, like this is where the question of perspective comes in. So like as a fact checker, when do you allow that perspective and that style to be heard so that we have author's voice, so that we have stories, so that people actually want to read things but that you're maintaining truth. You know, I'm just really going through the stories and and not trying to necessarily editorialize. And I, you know, I consistently put in notes in people's stories, BBC's two cents, and just make it as vague as possible, but still accurate. I kind of leave it on the editor. That's why I'm so glad to see the editor in your um, play, because that's that's exactly, you know, I, I kind of dump it on them. You know, I'm like, I, I want to go oh, for for the record. The fact checker says this, but I'm going to let you decide what you want to do with it. But that's that, also so interesting that sometimes we would rather err on the side of vagary mm-hmm. than on the side of incorrectness. That sometimes I just think to myself, like, oh, so if he had said some instead of just saying a number, like, yeah. would that have absolved him? And and why not just say that? But at the same time, like, do we want people to be getting more vague? 
Right. I mean, it depends on when your deadline is, too. <laughs> like, right. It's really down to the wire. You're like, okay, we cannot verify this. Right. I, think I, I can sit with it if you say some instead of this number because I cannot confirm right. this number. And, yeah. and, and that's what the editor did in the play throughout, right? As she keeps saying, well, what if we go this way? And what if we go this way? And she's trying to get the, the thing to print. I mean, that's sort of another one of the interesting things about the structure of the play, which is that all three people want the same thing. They all want the article to get published. Right. <laughs> Until Jim, the fact checker, um, decides he doesn't want the article to get published. But really, the three of them all want the same thing. And, and uh, they want, they want it to go. So, um, it's just, they, there's this for, you know, and then because it's a play that as the time gets closer, the stakes get higher and the boiling point reaches, um, you know, a, a place of kind of, um, what is hopefully a super delightful hysteria, but you know, it is, right. it is that thing of wanting to figure out how to get it done. Right. But I, I just keep coming back to this idea of like, who's, whose truth and whose perspective, because the coroner says it was eight seconds, but the parents say it was nine. So whose truth gets to prevail? Right. Or, you know, even John's example of the coastline, like he says, okay, what's the coastline of England? How, uh, what is the distance of that? Okay, well, if we're going by the circumference, it's one number and that is a fact and that is true. But if you start hugging it and go every inch, that is also true. It's like when we say it's the number one movie in America, is it number one by the critics? Is it number one at the box office? Is it number one at the national box office or the international box office? So like, how Barbara, how do you take those things and decide like whose truth is the one that we're trying to tell? Well, um, those are things that like if I see a number in a manuscript, I'm like, oh no, you know, it's like this has got this is this is put you on high alert, you know, because we'll say you know we'll do a travel story. It's three steps away or just across the street from, and like actually it was next door. You know, you, you don't have this right, so we make that change. Um, because that's, that's a fact, you know, across the street and next door, two different things. But, you know, I think the writer felt that, you know, that it sounded better. Oh, it's just across the street from. And so, again, I put it back on the editor when I talk about, you know, whose fact works. It's mine because I'm the fact checker. Ira, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about your experience with actually publishing a story and finding out it was not true with the Mike Daisy and the Apple Factory episode of This American Life. It's the exact thing of, you know, someone put theater on the stage. I agree with you that it was marketed as documentary theater, which is different than Lifespan of a Fact, which was not marketed as documentary theater. And that to you was a compelling enough emotional story to look into it and want to create a journalistic piece off of it. And obviously there was a very, there was a retraction and you took very clear responsibility about what went wrong in that process. But as we talk about vetting and things that are unverifiable and all those things, I'm wondering how that experience changed how you moved forward in your story choosing process, in your vetting process. 
Okay, so just, just to summarize for people who don't know the history of the radio show I work on in such an encyclopedic way. So there's this uh, so there's this storyteller named Mike Daisy who performs all over the country when he's in New York. It's often at the public theater. He's like an incredibly skilled, like wonderful yeah. performer. And uh, and and uh, and I'd been a fan for a long time. And I saw this thing that he did about about um, about uh, he loves Apple products. He's he's sort of a geek for that. Knows everything about them. And so he's just like right. and then the he started, of ecstasy of Steve Jobs was the name of his show. Right. And right. so and so at some point he he started to read about like well how do they make these things again? And he's like was very disturbed at what he read about the conditions under which they're made and the people who make them. And so he decided to fly himself to Shenzhen, China and try to go into the factories. He couldn't get a factory tour, but he could stand outside the gates and talk to people as they entered and exited and um and really tried to document like how do they make these things that I love and he put together a really beautiful, very moving, very funny show about it that I saw. Uh, at the public in New York. And, and afterwards I approached him and I said, like, that's just such an incredible piece of work. Um, could we excerpt it or do something from it for our radio audience? Uh, and I said, like, look, I understand when you're putting together something for the stage, like you compress events and like not everything is going to be true and that's entirely appropriate to the medium you're working in. But like what we would do is we would just take sections that are exactly verbatim true. You know, and so like, let's just talk about that. You know, is there anything in here that isn't verbatim true? Because like, we'll just leave that out. We don't need to get into that. All we want is the stuff. We're a journalistic outfit. What you're saying is so powerful. Let's do that. And he agreed to that. And um, and I said, we're going to fact check this. You know, we're going to like submit it, to, you know, go through fact checking. And he's like, that's right. fine. He's like, it's all true. And so we basically condensed his thing down and figured out for him how to perform it, which actually was a fascinating uh, like uh, thing because he performs as sort of big, but on radio, you actually have to perform kind of small because right. you're talking one-to-one -to, -one to a person. It's like a camera that's always in close up. And so we put him into a room in a very dark, small room with a very small audience and had to perform to them. And he's an amazing performer and he did great. And, um, and so we had this incredible recording and we put it out and really it was the most popular episode we had ever done. And then, <laughs> like, just saying like, look at how these things get made. And then, and then a reporter in China was just like, this doesn't, this doesn't sound right. This doesn't sound right at all. And, and the thing that tipped off that reporter was that, that Mike talked about meeting with a activist who, who's, uh, who like, you know, is, is uh, you know, worried about the conditions in the, uh, the factories. They met the activist in a Starbucks and, and, and this- Yeah, it was that detail and the other detail about the gates, the guards at the gates having guns and knowing right. that guards in China outside the military were not allowed to have guns. So it kind of right. brings us back to like that very, idea- Very, very tiny, yeah. A story wearing a suit- when As Barbara was saying, like, every fact counts. Yes, right. Barbara is so exactly right. Every Starbucks fact counts. Was strange, and <laughs> guards were strange. If if Mike Daisy had simply consulted with Barbara before putting this on stage and putting on this radio, he'd be fine today. This all this would never have happened. Okay, so so um, and so this reporter found, and we did fact check the story and we, we as, as best we could from the United States. And we really like, we talked to many, many people who, who knew what was going on in the, in the factories in China. And it turns out like everything Mike said was happening in the factories was true. 
um, with one thing that, that did not seem to be true. He said that he met somebody who was underage working in, a, in an Apple factory. And in fact, Apple is in fact incredibly aggressive about keeping out underage workers from working in their factories. Uh, but you know, like it's possible that there was somebody who actually was underage. You know, somebody slipped through the cracks. But it's very atypical. In any case, we did our fact checking, put it on the air, and then this reporter in China said basically they they ran it down and they found hit Mike's interpreter, and we had not. Like Mike gave us her phone number. We tried it. It didn't go through. He's like, I don't know who it is. It's like some lady who was I met at the hotel, you know. And 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 honestly, that was our mistake. That's we should never have aired this without talking to his interpreter. We should have really insisted and we should have run down. We should have hired a reporter in China to find her. Anyway, this reporter found the interpreter and the interpreter said that, um, that no, these things never happen. Like Mike, you know, recalls meeting somebody whose hand got mangled in a machine. Mike tells very dramatic stories. And, right. and so, and so, so in, in telling a good story, Mike had made up incidents to clothe the facts about what's going on in these, right, in these he's factories. going for an emotional truth. Because he's going for an emotional truth because that is properly Mike's business. That's his job. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, can I say, totally fine for that to be his job. He just shouldn't represent it as the factual, he's a theater artist. Like it's right. totally fine. He just shouldn't say, this is fact for fact true. He could say, this is inspired by true events. This is inspired by my trip to China. Like all of that would be fine. Um, and he shouldn't put it on to, and, and like, honestly, even if he, he had told that to us, maybe we would have said this isn't actually true, but the right. things he's depicting are true. Um, you know, right, like editors know, <laughs> editors know these, these events did not, many of these events did not happen, but the thing he's saying about the factories, you know, are basically true with this one exception. Um, but he pointed to many other things besides that. And, um, and, uh, you know, and and so basically, once we found out that it wasn't true, we did an entire episode and said, like, look, like these things didn't happen. These incidents, he didn't meet these people. He didn't have these conversations that he tells so movingly. You know, and then we had tried to be very precise. But let's be clear, what is true about what he said? And we tried to say, like, you know, labor activists and people in these plants and 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 people who know what's going on in these plants. These other things, like this, these things are true. The story he told is not true, and and I feel like. You know, again, my job is different than Lee's. Like, you know, like I'm in the fact business, and uh, and in right. the feelings business, actually. Um, and so, in in a way, that's very different than than Lee's job. And and honestly, like I, after that, like I I really like like in a no joke way, really thought we people might not. I really thought maybe the show was over. Like like to have the most popular episode you ever do, where you take on the most profitable company in the world. Um, and say all these things about them for it to not turn out to be true. Um, yeah. That is not, that is not uh, a way to run, you know, any kind of journalistic outfit. And really, I really did think like maybe the show's over and we're all going to do other things. And, and, but anyway, so, you know, we very much, we spent a nut, we did an episode that's an hour long sort of explaining, here's how this happened. Here's what's not true. Here's what is true, you know, and then just kind of held our fingers. The thing that we added after that is before that, we would hire fact checkers on an occasional project here or there if it was an investigative story or something. But generally the way we fact check the story is the way that reporters and editors do it in a newsroom. Like I came out of All Things Considered and Morning Edition, the NPR news shows. And, and right. in those contexts where you're just turning out a story that same day, there's no fact checker. You know, what happens is you and your editor talk about like, wait, where'd you get this? What is it? Was this true? And it's just it's something that you'd negotiate between you and your editor. And that's the way we had always done it 
up until that point. And then basically after that point, we're like, let's do this the way the New Yorker does or the way the New York Times Magazine does. And we basically hired, we have you know a team of fact checkers led by a wonderful fact checker, Christopher Swatala, who wrote a really lovely piece actually about your play, Lee. Um, uh, you know, you know, like basically going in and re-reporting every fact and every story. Mm. One of the things that I think was really exciting to me about the lifespan of a fact and and to, to the point also that's something that Barbara had said earlier is that I didn't think that people really had an understanding of what the process was like and actually how aerobic it is and how many questions there are and what, um, because it is, you know, this is the question of the play is, is it clear what is fact and what is not? And at any point, and the more you think about it, it's like one of those things, like it it exponentially gets farther away every time you get closer to it, like you can never get there. And so, you know, I thought putting that on stage would actually, um, although I know it kind of makes Ira's head explode, I, I did feel by theatricalizing that debate, it it wouldn't lean us in the direction of, oh, um, journalists are bananas, but that in fact it would um, help us understand the process by which and the ambiguities and the inconsistencies and the questions that go into things that ostensibly are black and white. Is it true? Is it not? And that there is um, much more vagary attached to it. And therefore it's a much more complicated conversation and it's a much more um, uh, uh, sort of a thrilling exercise. Well, our relationship, Barbara, when we worked together and I was the writer and you were the fact checker, I mean, the moment when he picks up, where's his backup and it's that one sheet of paper. And I just remember having to hand backup into you and it was my whole transcript of an interview, it was the original printout of the study from, you know, the medical journal and everything. And like what really constitutes good backup versus bad backup so that you can do your job. Yeah. I always do have, um, I have a list of things that, that writers need to comply with, you know, just, um, and, and, you know, I can, I can wiggle a little bit. I'm like, if you don't have the exact study, at least have the public relations or the PR uh, release from the university that gave you that study. You know, that's closer. I can reach out to the study author. They're thrilled when I reach them. I'm like, all right, we're going to take your giant study and make it into a sentence. This true. <laughs> and they're like, I'm so glad you asked, you know, and that's the, the reaction I get. Or, you know, a lot of them, you know, are very calm about it. Well, that's fair to say, you know, like, is it true? I know you said it was fair, but is it true? You know, it's, yeah. it's funny, you know, but that's the way I handle it. That's the way mm-hmm. I try. I just wanted to actually quote something from the play, maybe as a, just as a example of this, which is um, a part where Jim has said um, to Emily, the uh, Jim, the fact checker has said to Emily, the editor, um, are you going to print it? And Emily says, I don't know. It's a moving, meaningful and rare piece of writing. I have my magazine to put out. I have a hundred union members that I'm currently paying overtime so that my intern can be comfortable with a one second discrepancy in an 1100 foot fall. And Jim, the fact checker says, how can you even for a moment claim that facts are negotiable? And even if they are, 
You're asking an intern to defend the actual nature of the world as it stands against white lies, maybe, but lies. Exactly. It's really important to me that we provide action steps for our listeners to take forward. I want to know either just what content creators should be doing to preserve truth or what readers should be looking for to make sure that what they're reading is true. Like what are your, like what's a best practice moment for people to take with them? I mean, when you get to that, like our country is like, truthfully, like our country is completely fucked. You know, when you look at the Pew surveys of like, of, of what people can tell about what is fact and what is not, like, I don't remember the numbers offhand. I guess I should have looked them up before this, but, but generally, um, people generally, a huge swath of our country does not discern uh, the difference between fact and opinion. And, and so, and so, uh, so people do not like read newspapers or, or watch the news, uh, whatever channel they watch with the thought of like, oh, this part is the fact part. And this part is the opinion part. You know, this is an opinion segment. And so, and so, um, you know, I just think just as a country, we're doing a terrible job making clear to children as they, as they learn to like, as they learn to like go out on the internet to discern like what is, what, what is a reliable source, like Barbara says, and what isn't. And, you know, just like, I, I don't have a, a brief summary of best practices, like in a way, like, I feel like even asking for it isn't, isn't, rep, isn't understanding like the scale of, of the problem we're in. Like what we have right now is we live in a, in a country where, where we are tribally divided and, you know, there's one team, the mainstream media, which is doing fact-based news and journalism. And there's another team, which often I will say does rely on the facts, but often is not feel bound by them. Um, or we'll just ignore the ones that are inconvenient and focus on the ones that are convenient. And, and, uh, you know, and there are two realities to everything. You know, it was really, it's only since the president came out and said, like, we are in a national crisis that lots of people really believed that the coronavirus epidemic, uh, pandemic is is more than just like a left-wing media hype to right. make the president look bad. And like, you know, and I feel like that's completely, um, like we live in a world where all of us for the rest of our lives are, are going to are going to exist in this world where there's a, a, like a fact based <laughs> fact based kind of like journalism out there and a non fact based kind of journalism and and that mm-hmm. in that war right now I have to say I believe the fact based journalists we are losing we are losing ground I feel like the other side is better funded and sees it as a war and I feel like you know we're holding our own I feel like every day there's journalism happening that's factual that I feel proud of. Uh, being life makes me feel proud to be a journalist, but, um, but, uh, but, uh, like, I feel like we have not, like those of us in the, in the fact community, um, we have not figured out how to effectively counter what's happened. And as a result, well, so perhaps it's a matter of putting our, putting our money behind the fact based outlets. There you go. There you go. Uh, uh, sure. Donate to your public radio station, subscribe to the New York times or Washington post. Sure. Support the stuff you like in the way that you would support a play that you like. Absolutely. Maybe Barbara, I'm wondering what we can take away. How how do we best protect journalism? Is it a matter of writing to publishers and saying you need to fund your fact-checking departments better? Is it a matter of writing to editors-in-chief and saying, uh, I noticed this is wrong? Or 
like what should we be demanding as the public to get out of this screwed over world that Ira is convinced we're in? Yeah, that world of alternate facts. What is that? You know, it's that whole idea that often, you know, we are, you know, we we're, they make smaller and smaller um, um, editorial staff, and then it's left to the fact checker who's getting things done at the last minute. And you you have to start getting, you know, um, you, it's overworking the fact checker. And that, and that's fundamentally, that's what the uh, magazines it has to rely on. We're, we're, we're really um, um, providing um, a, a service for the magazine for people to know, I know I can trust this magazine. I know I can trust it because I'm getting facts from this magazine. And, you know, um, people are quick to write when they see something wrong. But um, yeah. it would be nice if people wrote in and said, wow, glad you did that story because that's something that's been misleading in the somewhere else I read it and I was glad to see it. Is there a list of publications and or outlets that have fact-checking departments so that you know if what you're reading is has that as part of the process? Um, I don't know that there's a list like that. And, it, and I think if there is a list, it's getting smaller and smaller because people are, um, you know, publishers are starting to figure out how we can get this out faster if we just get it out. But it, to get it out fast is not to get it out right. Well, it's like in the play when she says, we don't have a fact checking department anymore. And it's how an interpreter on the story. Totally. <laughs> yeah. um, so true. Um, but that's that's the reality. Um, and um, But of course, you can look at the masthead. And see, is there a research director? Is there a research chief? You know, and see if they actually have fact checkers. We need um, publications that have departments like the ones that Barbara just said. We need people to take their own responsibility for getting information from places like that, for understanding the difference between fact and opinion. It becomes, I think, incredibly dangerous. And so I find myself a person more and more, uh, surprisingly so. And I think like that audience, I mean, I was sort of described people laughing and at, at, you know, at the play and, and, and how crazy it made him feel. And it, I understand that. But I also feel like part of what people were laughing at and part of what their experience was, was, was a sense of understanding and desire for the yes. thing that, um, that Jim was saying, which is that they understood, even though it was crazy, 12% of the moon, what, do, what does that even mean? That's such a small detail. But I think part of what the sound was coming out of that audience was a comprehension and an understanding that in fact, the, those things are important because that's where the slippery slope starts that ends us up where we are. You want people to have the trust. Yeah. And like Ira was saying was when he was talking about the Mike Daisy episode, I think that the reason he thought they were done was because he felt he had betrayed a trust. I think that that's probably what all this comes down to. When it comes to trust, I want to make things easier for you, the listeners, to navigate. So consumers out there, check out the resources at whywetheater.com as well as in the episode description. Take the quiz to see if you know the difference between fact and opinion statements. And if you struggle a little bit, that's okay. There's resources there to learn the difference between fact and opinion statements. Know how to check your sources. Like Barbara was telling us, go to the original source. Don't just read it on a blog, on a Facebook post. Go to the CDC website if you have coronavirus questions. Also, be aware when reporters are what we call editorializing, which is commenting on the news. So a statement such as a tornado happened in 
Oklahoma. God, that's awful. A tornado happened in Oklahoma is the fact. God, that's awful is an editorializing comment on that fact. And these are important distinctions to make. There's also guidance as to how to read a masthead, as well as the names of some trustworthy publications. Stay aware, check your sources, and for the content creators out there, invest in your fact checkers. Invest in your research directors. We're counting on you to uphold the truth. Why We Theater is a product of the Broadway Podcast Network. It's edited and mixed by Derek Gunther. If you like the show, subscribe at bpn.fm slash WWT or Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review and tell your friends. Our theme music is by Benjamin Velez. Why We Theater is recorded in part on the traditional lands of the Wappinger and Lenape peoples. I acknowledge this land was unjustly taken from them and pay my respect to elders both past and present. Special thanks to Dory Berenstein, Alan Seals, Lee Silverman, Patrick Taylor, Tony Montaneri, Wesley Birdsall, Elena Mayer, and Suzanne Chipkin. For more resources for change, info about our guests, and more, visit us at whywetheater.com. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.